Hello from the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain here at MIT's Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Jonathan Askin, professor at Brooklyn Law School. I'm Tony Lai, the co-founder and CEO of Legal.io. My name is Mark Potkowitz, and I am the Legal Technology Fellow at Brooklyn Law School. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here at the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain. Today, we're talking about legal technology, legal hacking, and access to justice. Tony, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about Legal.io, where you came from, and how you got and established Legal.io? Sure, thanks a lot, Jonathan. Uh, so, Legal.io, we are a mission-driven group of engineers, designers, legal technologists, and professionals passionate about building technology and partnerships to ensure access to legal help. Uh, we started off five years ago. Uh, I was a fellow, I still am a fellow at the Codex Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. Uh, and legal informatics is essentially the science of information flow through the legal system. Basically building a huge community of researchers and entrepreneurs, academics who care an awful lot about using technology to make the entire legal system work better. And so from being a researcher, uh, I became an entrepreneur. I was lucky to be part of a community called Stardex, which is a, a Stanford community of entrepreneurs. Uh, it's a nonprofit that accelerates the development uh, through experiential education for founders coming out of Stanford. And uh, having been a team member on that uh, initiative, it felt like the right thing to do, having a community around me to then take on some of the naughty challenges that I was seeing in Access to Justice. And if my research associates are accurate, uh, you're also the founder and head of San Francisco Legal Hackers, is that right? That's correct. Well, I, I don't know founder is the right word for something like Legal Hackers because it's a long and storied movement, as it were, and we call ourselves co-organizers. Uh, I was basically inducted into this uh, by your good self and Daza Greenwood and uh, one of your very, very uh, capable students uh, and uh, Proteges, let's say, Jameson Dempsey. Uh, he came out to San Francisco and said, hey, Tony, we used to have a legal hackers chapter in San Francisco, and right now we don't. Uh, it, it kind of fizzled out, and you're here, you're, you've been building communities. How about you try and kickstart this again? And I was like, sure. Uh, I've got a buddy, he's called Noah Thorpe. I think he would bring the tech to my legal, and together we, we just started uh, holding a few events, and that's kind of how legal hackers chapters generally start. It's, uh, it's a tremendous community all around the world, and thanks a lot to you, Jonathan, for making it all happen you know, well, many years ago. You're very kind, except I got to say, you, Tony, have brought San Francisco legal hackers to a new high watermark and have set a standard by which other legal hackers chapter have a lot of work to live up to. I, again, so, I think we're, we're in some okay. crazy kind of love fest here, and you know, yeah. let's just wait till Speaking Mark jumps in. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, Mark, you called yourself a legal technology fellow at Brooklyn Law School. You're also the new, uh, the incoming organizer of New York Legal Hackers. Can you tell us about both of those aspects? Tell us about what this legal technology fellowship is about. Sure. So uh, to begin with, the legal technology fellowship at Brooklyn Law School is funded by the Kaufman Foundation out of Kansas City. Uh -huh. And it allows me to work with students on developing technological solutions to things related to law and law process with respect to how entrepreneurs can access legal services. 
So at the moment, some of the things that we're looking at are incoming European privacy laws known as the General Data Protection Regulation, which is going to impact any business that does business in Europe or has an online presence. So with the grant from the Kauffman Foundation, I'm able to spend time working with students to figure out ways we can examine and new technologies to help entrepreneurs and small businesses figure out what some of the legal issues they might run to down the road are. Now, with respect to legal hackers, as uh, was mentioned earlier by Tony and, and Jonathan here, uh, this was an organization started many years ago by two incredible folks. Um, it began in New York, quickly migrated to D.C., and has spread since then. And the New York chapter is the oldest and the largest. And while the founders have been focusing more on international expansion, they've asked me and um, a friend of mine named Courtney, who's another Brooklyn Law alumna, to take over the New York Legal Hackers chapter. So for me, I have ulterior motives in bringing the two of you together, because frankly, I love the concept that we've got an organizer of San Francisco Legal Hackers and an organizer of New York Legal Hackers together at one table. I also love the fact that we've got Stanford and Brooklyn Law School together at one table. That's my secret ambition, is for everyone to say Stanford and Brooklyn Law in one breath. So a lot of the collaborations I want, I would love to bring the technology community and legal community of Brooklyn and New York City to collaborate with the technology and legal community of Stanford and San Francisco and the Valley. So to me, that's a not-so-secret dream. So having said that, we haven't touched on uh, access to justice issues. Uh, Tony, you brought up Legal.io. It was founded on the principle of bringing access to justice to underserved communities. Is that right? What that's right. So a lot of the early research that we were doing uh, whilst we were researchers at Codex was around the problems that a lot of people faced in getting on the first rung of the ladder of getting legal help. We did a lot of research uh, with our local legal aid organizations, just uh, and legal aid organizations, uh, just to be clear, are a tremendous frontline organizations that provide free legal help to people who can't afford to get access. And unfortunately, they are really restricted in terms of their resources and they have to limit who they provide that help to, to people who are fall within a certain range. Uh, it's generally about 120% of the American poverty level. And so what that means is they end up turning away four out of every five people who come through their doors. This for me was symptomatic of the complete gutting of the American middle class that happened post Great Recession. And you know, obviously this happened all around the world, but I was there in Silicon Valley, one of the richest and most innovative areas of the world, and yet there were hundreds of thousands of people who were getting completely screwed to you know, just be a little straight there by the system. And so for me, this was about a, how can we bring about systemic change in the way that we can apply technology to actually completely reformulate how people are able to get access to what really should be a human right. I consider having uh, access to legal help something like having a third limb. Uh, and for those, for those of us who have it, it's, it's a tremendous boon. We can do things that society has created as part of you know, embedding this legal system everywhere. And, and without that, we're, we're, we're fundamentally disabled. And it's a travesty that in this day and age, with the resources that we have as a society at large, that we still leave people struggling to get even the most basic legal help. I think you called part of your team, you mentioned a couple different types of skill sets required. You called them legal technologists? That's right. So legal tech is obviously something that your listeners have a lot of uh, background in, but we've been really fortunate at Stanford to have a center in Codex, which is dedicated towards bringing together 
you know, some of the brightest and most amazing folks from uh, across the university, but in particular the, the computer science department, mm. and working alongside lawyers, legal researchers, legal professionals coming out of Stanford Law School. And the thing about Stanford in general is that it's a tremendously entrepreneurial ecosystem. So it wasn't enough for the center leaders to be doing research. They wanted real projects. They wanted people to be going out there finding what the problems were and then trying to create solutions, frankly, trying to create tools and trying to create the technology that would be practically useful to people. And frankly, that's one of the reasons why I got involved with Legal Hackers, because again, it's a tremendous community where it's not enough just to talk, it's all about the action. Like actions trump words every single time. So Mark, you mentioned the European privacy law project that you're working mm -hmm. on. Uh, do you, as a legal tech fellow or as the organizer of New York Legal Hackers, pursue similar access to justice issues in either capacity? Absolutely. So there are a lot of circumstances where we have people who identify pain points in a systematic process or legal issues or other kinds of areas in which people aren't necessarily getting what they need or people are having a hard time getting what they need. And what's great is being able to bring together people with different diverse skill sets who can tackle problems from different perspectives. So one of the projects we're looking at right now has to do with looking at open data, so data that's publicly available, some of which might come from the city of New York, some of which might come from the state of New York, some of which may come from search engines or, or review sites or apartment rental sites to figure out what open data exists out there and how we can use this data to tell stories to help public defenders or prosecutors with cases. So we can maybe see correlations that we may not think exist between certain types of factors that could relate to crime or policing. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of experiments that we like to look at and explore and see if we can scale them and replicate them to help across an entire system or across an entire practice area. There's a really interesting thing uh, about data is that oftentimes it's way more useful when it's shared. Uh, it's not a zero-sum game when it comes to data. It's one of these resources that really only comes into its own value when it's actually shared and utilized in a way that you know, brings people together. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I found about the access to justice problem was that so much of it was that data that each of these organizations was gathering was siloed. I mean, this is data about people who need help and to the extent people gave them that data, it stayed siloed within that organization instead of being made available to the next organization mm -hmm. who they could have referred them to, and this would have connected those dots. Well, it's fascinating because a lot of time law has viewed technology as a cost center. Law as a practice is often very backwards looking, right? We look at old cases, we look at old laws and figure out how that fits within the current schema. And so it makes sense that historically people were reluctant to share data in the legal context. But we're moving toward a day and age where Things want to be open. People want open data. And there's, I think, so much more we can do, as Tony says, when data is shared across networks. And we can have, we're having lawyers do amazing things with data. We're having technologists do amazing things with law. And we're getting to a point where you're going to have, right now, if a lawyer is willing to look at a spreadsheet, they're the resident data expert. You know, and, and we're getting to a point where you're starting to see lawyers incorporate tools and visualization tools to help these data tell stories. And that's unbelievable to me that we're looking at a medium that's so focused, law that is, as a medium that's so focused on words, that we're also starting to incorporate pictures and the pictures are derived from data, which is really exciting. So, Mark, I love to see your passion. It gives me great joy. And if I have any right to claim some pride in your uh, experience, I would like to claim some pride. But 
Tony, it looks like, when did you start Legal.io? So I started Legal.io back in 2012. It was uh, a year after I graduated from my second law degree. So you're sort of the exception proving the rule. So Legal Hackers started also in 2012. The first Legal Hackathon was at Brooklyn Law School in 2012. And frankly, it grew out of, I, when I first started teaching, the students and I would go to hackathons. And we always felt like wallflowers at the revolution. We would stand on the sidelines and watch these coders and developers solve problems. And 46 hours later, we would come in and throw a bucket of water on the flames that they had just launched. You know, we'd say, you didn't protect your IP, you didn't uh, uh, divide your equity, you didn't figure out any of the legal nuances that are necessary to become a viable venture. And I thought that wasn't what we should be training next generation lawyers to do. Our thought was, shouldn't we train next lawyers to think like these brilliant innovators in this room? So we decided to bring the innovators to us to become project managers in a hackathon, to determine what the issues are that we should explore. So we did the first legal hackathon in 2012. You started Legal.io in 2012. When we first started Legal Hackers, we were essentially doing talkathons. We had no technologists in the room, no coders in the room, no real entrepreneurs in the room. It was us talking about issues and really not building anything viable. It was very fun and interesting. Part of the reason I came to teach at MIT for a semester was to secretly get one of the world's leading technology schools without a law school of its own to partner with us and be our technology partner. Now, it sounds like you are a self-contained legal hack organization at Legal.io. You did that essentially, you built it without a net. You brought together lawyers, technologists, uh, entrepreneurs to build a venture without the need of a legal hackathon support network. Is that a fair assessment? No, it's not. Uh, one of the things about what I've been able to do is I've been able to benefit from the fruits of multiple communities that I've been able to be a part of. And I think that's a testament just to the way that anything truly great gets done. It's done with a community. That's my passion and that's my belief. I couldn't have done this without Codex. I couldn't have done this without Stardex. I frankly couldn't have done this without the community that I live within, uh, the Embassy Network. I live within a co-living community with 15 other residents and there's a few other CEOs and there's a few other you know, great thinkers and we feed off each other all the time. And, and that's part of the beauty, I think, of getting oneself outside of your comfort zones. That's, at the end of the day, what entrepreneurship is all about. It's about the adjacent possible, right? And if you're able to put yourselves in a position where you're happy and willing to go through these doors that are open for you, and yes, I was fortunate I was at a place, Stanford, where I could put my foot in the door and generally the door would be open. So you said the adjacent possible. Is that to suggest, and look, I, I look at Brooklyn as this hotbed, this melting pot where everyone lives on top of each other, which is why I think Brooklyn is experiencing this renaissance moment, which is why I think San Francisco is experiencing this renaissance moment. You have very smart people from completely disparate uh, backgrounds and interests and communities on top of each other. You don't know what amazing things are going to happen, but something amazing is going to happen in San Francisco and New York and in Berlin and London. Can it happen in North Dakota? I like to think that given uh, the way that if you hustle for it and if you find the right communities potentially online, potentially you're willing to put yourself out there, be a little vulnerable and, and, and make some calls, make some cold calls if necessary. But at the end of the day, it's about being comfortable with being a little vulnerable. And some of it is about serendipity. It's about 
you know, uh, knowing that sometimes things will fail. Sometimes you'll put something out there and you'll get totally shot down. But sometimes it's about just putting yourself out there and being in the right group of people. And we call it serendipity acceleration. Well, now, uh, sorry, I want to ask a question of, of Tony and Jonathan. So I'm going to ask you first, Tony. Were there any people or groups that you didn't think would be allies that turned out to be incredible supporters or incredible collaborators? Wow. I... Well, I guess I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit by saying that I think that in law, we look at especially on the policy side, we look at coalitions and we look at who the, the stakeholders are and we look at who would be opposed to us and who would support us. And on occasion, on certain issues or around certain things, we coalesce and are able to build a consensus and form a coalition around that consensus. So I guess, are there any collaborations that you found that you've worked on that you were surprised to be working in or maybe a year earlier you would have been surprised to have been working with? I think that the groups that I would most give credit to right now are some of the partners that we're working with that have been institutions for decades, if not over 100 years. And these are some of the local uh, and state level bar associations that many people disparage as being, you know, dinosaurs backwards, uh, you know, just generally not ready to keep pace with the developments of innovation. And yet, if you find the right people within these organizations who are willing to embrace change, and in some senses, they've been you know, enabled to, to think more broadly about innovation by great leaders. But when you can find those individuals and they can be champions for change, that has been one of the, the most satisfying, uh, gratifying um, experiences in, in my last year. And I'll so, tell you my biggest surprise. Yeah. I'm an old government bureaucrat. I've been in and out of government for a couple decades. What surprises me most about this moment in time is how much collaboration and support we've had from various government entities. That's been a shock. They've usually been the naysayers because every step every, of the way. Interrupt, you're saying federal, state, or local? At every level, particularly, say, at the local level. So here's where I get the, you know, I, I'm a Brooklyn guy. I am amazed every time someone from New York City, from the mayor's office, from the Economic Development Corporation, from the city council, from the New York Attorney General's office, approaches us to collaborate and be a little bit more prescient. You know, we were all taken by surprise by Uber and Airbnb. We all want to be able to anticipate the opportunity for a government to embrace new technology while still ensuring the broadest public good. Government, as particularly at the local level, has stepped up and said, we want to embrace technology, we want to bring the best fruits and the best access to justice solutions, what have you, the best social support for our people using new technology. New York City has stepped up in a profound way. Now, we've created legal hackers communities in about 60 cities around the world. And most of the 60 cities have partnered with the legal hackers community to try to build legal tech and civic tech tools to enable their citizens. So That's been a profound change. Do you think change. we're at a point of inflection here where we're going to start to see more collaboration with or more sponsorship from government? Well, here's what it Well, certainly the Obama administration bent over backwards to accommodate this stuff. I don't know where we are right now. Uh, but what I see is government now willing to embrace technology as a tool for social justice, and everyone wants to, enough governments out there want to be pioneers in this front. Well, I think just building off of that, I have been also surprised by the ways in which lawyers and legal professionals have stood up over the last year. Circumstances, political realities has meant that lawyers, in thinking about what they can actually do to maintain the civic discourse and engagement that has made, in many ways, this country great. People are turning to lawyers. The separation of powers has become increasingly important. A strong, independent judiciary has never been more important. And as part of that, I think an open, accessible, empowering legal system has suddenly kind of 
been turned on as a light within lawyers because they see, okay, I have been entrusted through statute, through the various different societal mechanisms as being, in a way, empowered to empower other people. And you know, lawyers always get a bad rap, but I think this year there's been a definite change and we're seeing the fruits of that because lawyers do want to get involved, they want to engage and they want to do social justice. All right, I want to bring one minor note into the arena and then end it on a uh, nice major crescendo. All right, I've always been upset and concerned over the years that the various hackathon communities, the legal hackers communities, Code for America, very often we code, we do a hackathon over the weekend and it sort of dies in its own vortex. We've had historically no way to memorialize. What I'm hopeful for, now that we've got San Francisco and New York together, are we now in a position where we can actually reiterate and learn from each other so that we have a perpetual virtual hackathon where what happens in San Francisco is learned and picked up by the folks in New York, which is learned and picked up by the folks in Berlin, which is learned and picked up by the folks in Helsinki. Have we created that ecosystem where we're all building on the tops of giants who came before us? Yes. <laughs> the reason I say that, uh, not to be flippant at all, is actually that the Kaufman Foundation has done a tremendous job in bringing together a group of legal technologists, hackers, uh, researchers, academics, and entrepreneurs, frankly, who are all dedicated towards building legal technology for the greater good. It's called the Legal Technology Lab. We're all going to be meeting together in Kansas City on November the 16th and demonstrating and showcasing the results of these initial projects that have been funded by the Kaufman Foundation. And my particular project that I've been so honored to do with Luz Herrera, Ellen Suni, and Lenz Andro has been around this notion of networked impact. And we're doing this notion of networked impact precisely to do what you're saying. Can we, as a network, take the fruits of our individual efforts and put those towards the benefit of the entire ecosystem. This is systemic change we're talking about, and these are methodologies, tried and tested methodologies for systemic change that funders love. They love funding something not that's gonna be a silo, but that's actually gonna have systemic effect. And I think together, guys, we can do this. Yeah, when, as Tony mentioned earlier, these silos, we're breaking down these silos, we're breaking through these silos, we're breaking out of these silos, to twist the metaphor. And as I mentioned earlier, I think data sort of wants to be open and people want to use open data. And so I absolutely think that we'll be able to start this volley or this kind of chain hackathon, if anybody remembers those from the old days of uh, AOL. But yeah, I think this is very doable, and I think it's happening. Well, that's a wonderful, upbeat note in which to end this discussion. Before we close it out for today, I have one last question for you. If listeners would like to follow up with you, where can they reach you? Well, you can find me on Twitter, at LAI, or you can email me directly, tony at legal.io. And um, my name is Mark Potkowitz. You can find me at Potkowitz on Twitter. That's at P-O-T-K-E-W-I-T-Z. And my email is mark, M-A-R-K dot Potkowitz at brooklaw, B-R-O-O-K-L-A-W dot E-D-U. Terrific. Thanks, guys. We've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank you both, Tony and Mark, for joining us today. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.